Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by well, anybody. We are currently looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, an organization or business you know or are involved with, might be interested in finding out some more information about sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please contact me online either via mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. We can start to go over how things might work and have you or your business sponsoring the Road to Success podcast. Until then, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today for part one of my conversation with the amazing Sean Thomas. Sean Thomas, hey, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, um, I'm I'm interested in uh, in you on a on a number of levels, but I, I think um, maybe we start by um, you know understanding a little bit who you are. So so maybe you could give us a bit of a, a cliff notes version of of I guess who you are and and, and what you've done and and I guess what you've sort of spent a, a career doing. Okay, well I guess the absolute beginning was I was born in Dunedin in 1963 to a student. Um, my father always liked to joke that because of me, he failed one paper due to distraction, though he couldn't quite remember whether it was my conception or birth. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, he was a medical student back then. Eventually, we made our way up to Fokotani by well, my school age. So I started my schooling in Fokotani, um, which is pretty normal by most standards. I think it would be reasonable to say I was a somewhat awkward child socially. <laughs> uh, I was completely non-competitive. Uh, this frustrated my parents rather a bit, and particularly my dad. I was much more interested in having an adventure. I was motivated by going for adventures rather than winning anything. And um, my, my father was very competitive and successful in sports, and he, he found it most unusual that I, for example, he got me into sailing P-class boats and I'd much rather sail around in circles and go fishing than, than win anything. In fact, there was one particularly funny time, well, only in retrospect, when I was sailing in Tauranga for some trials for the national champs that would be held in Dunedin, and I was winning this race, but I was a bit lonely out in front, and also I couldn't see very well. And so I got to one of the boys and couldn't see where the next boy was to aim for, so I decided to sail round around in circles, round around the boy till everyone else caught up. And then when I found some friends, I sailed to the finish with them, <laughs> and of course didn't didn't get selected, and um, and met a very frenzied dad back at the back at the beach. <laughs> but um, that really probably summed up my whole view of the whole competitive thing. Mm -hmm. But adventures, yes, I was um, very keen on adventures, and I, as a young man, I probably drove my parents to despair with many of my great ideas. I can recall one as an example. When I was 11, I got my first three-speed bicycle, um, and I was very proud of this bicycle, and I thought I must show our grandparents, my grandparents, and so I hopped on it early one morning. I do recall telling my parents this is what I was going to do. They may not have believed it. And I pedaled from Whakatane to Mount Maunganui, which is not that far. It's about 85K <laughs> um, uh, on the open road. And, um, and that seemed like a very wise, sensible thing to do. However, I, I 
failed to take a few things into account. Like I didn't realize that grandparents ever left their houses. I'd never had before. And by chance, when I arrived at my grandparents' Mount Monganui, they were just reversing down the drive to go somewhere else. So it was quite lucky. Anyway, I'd showed them my bicycle. I was about to turn around and pedal back again, but they popped it in the car and very kindly drove me back. But, um, yeah, that, that was the sort of thing I, I just loved doing, and I was forever heading off on great adventures and walking, cycling, sailing trips. Yeah. The um, school years were a bit interesting. I was a pretty average to below average student, and uh, for for a curious reason, um, I was mostly blind. I was fully blind in one eye. Well, I can see about 10 centimetres. And in my good eye, which is good compared to my bad eye, I can see very little. And I pretty much went through school having never seen the blackboard. I had no glasses. I didn't get glasses, in fact, till I was 22 wow. and at university. And I also couldn't see the blackboard and there was just no chance of attend, you know, completing successfully in any, any course. So I went off and saw an optometrist and got glasses and was absolutely astonished the day I got glasses. <laughs> I see you were. <laughs> I, just, I saw my, I, for the first time I saw leaves on a tree. Um, I, I saw a fly on the ceiling. In fact, I was lying on my back on a bed when the guy popped the glasses on me and I saw a fly. I thought, wow. And it completely changed my life, actually. I sold my motorbike. I, <laughs> once I could see how dangerous it was, dangerous it was I never rode again. Which is really quite bizarre. It is bizarre. <laughs> riding cheerily around. I'm blind. <laughs> blind, yes. In fact, I can. I remember one night I'd, I'd taken a mate on the back of my bike from Hamilton to Fokatani after work. And when we got there, he said, gosh, Sean, you have the most unusual riding style. It's like you can't see the corners to the last minute. And I remember thinking, <laughs> who can? Why would he say that? But anyway, I, I came to discover that most people can actually see where they're going and um, Oh well, such it was. <laughs> but what so did, I what, popped out of school. What did you study Sorry. when you were at university? Oh, actually, engineering. But before I went to university, when I first left school, I was looking for any job out of Fakatani, to be honest. Um, and I, I took a radiography training position at Waikato Hospital, where I worked slash trained for three years. And that's where I was introduced to psychology. We did a, a one or two psychology papers with some. Um, through the Waikato University. And that really picked my interest in psychology. But I also had a great interest in things engineering. I had built all sorts of weird contraptions in my youth. I even attempted to build my own hand glider uh, when I was about age 13, first year of high school. And um, perhaps fortunately, my parents never let me fly it. <laughs> I thought I'd been very clever because I weighed a brick, which weighed 1.2 kilos, a big lump of concrete I found. And I built a hand glider that would fly the brick quite satisfactorily. I then weighed myself and geometrically scaled up and built a bigger hand glider that was the right number of multiple times larger to fly me. Of course, what I didn't realize at the time was that fluids and forces related to fluids don't scale geometrically. <laughs> so there was no chance my bigger glider flying. But I've discovered that in the second or third year of my mechanical engineering oh, degree. Good thing you didn't try that <laughs> then. Yes, yes, because there were some quite big trees and cliffs around um, to leap <laughs> off, which I would have no doubt given a go. Um, 
But nonetheless, I had all these great engineering ideas and things that I wanted to do. So I thought, engineer is me. So that's what I did. I went, went to Auckland University and did a mechanical engineering degree, um, which given my, my schooling start was a bit of a challenge to start with. I had to relearn a lot of things. And um, yeah, there was a lot of hard work to kick off with. But it was good. Can imagine. And it's it sort of the good thing about me doing the engineering degree is it actually it actually rewrote the book for me a little about, hey, I'm, I wasn't so much silly as I was blind. <laughs> um, and now I could see and blackboard and read books and things. I was actually doing quite okay. Yes. That was good. It really, it really sorted that out for me. I can imagine. And then, and then did you go into, into mechanical engineering you know, profession from there? Sort of. Um, yes, I, I did actually get employed as a mechanical engineer. And the joke is, it's mostly a joke, but it's also tr- true. <laughs> I didn't really work as a mechanical engineer. I, I always like to tell as a, as a sort of a slightly colourful story that I did a four-year degree and worked for four, year, four hours as an engineer because literally on my first day, I ended up working on software. I met some guys having some software challenges. and I'd, done a, I'd been quite interested in writing software in parallel to my engineering degree. And so I said, oh, I, I could do that. And they let me have a go, and I did do that. And from then on, I pretty much wrote software, um, industrial control software. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really do a whole lot as an actual engineer, a little bit here and there, yeah. but um, I ended up writing software. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? You sort of obviously, you know, from quite early on, you, you sort of you found a, a, a real interest in, in psychology, but also, a, um, you know, you're looking for a career in, in mechanical engineering. I, mean, I, I don't know a huge amount about either of those, but they seem quite opposing. Oh, look, they, they were, and to be fair, um, I didn't have a clue what a career in engineering might look like, and if I did, <laughs> I might have chosen more wisely. I actually did my engineering degree because I was very, very interested in wind turbines specifically, but in alternative energy and appropriate technology generally, and boats, sailing boats and things like that, and I had great aspirations for building solar water heaters, wind turbines, you know, producing my own power, all those sorts of things were actually what motivated me to do engineering. Yeah. Um, more than the career side. And, and then obviously, um, you know, you, you had this interest in, in software um, and and um, I guess you, you, you went on, um, maybe I'm sort of skipping a little bit, but you went on to, 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 to start your company um, and, and and that was sort of based around, um, you know, employee engagement but also, um, you know, s- software solutions for, for larger corporations as well. Is that correct? Oh, that, that's absolutely right. I worked for 18 months for a large corporate as a, engineer. And one of the things I realized through that time is that we, the company and I, were tackling the problem of improving productivity in entirely the wrong manner. And that we were looking at the plant in terms of numbers and things instead of in terms of people and social systems. And that motivating and engaging the people and getting them on side was vastly more important than solving small technical problems. Yes, the technical problems had to be solved, but that couldn't and shouldn't be your starting point. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, the company and I just never agreed on that. So I thought, well, I was going to do my own thing. Yeah. So not and you know, after well, it wasn't quite a one clean step, but it was pretty close to it. But in 1990, I popped over to Sydney for a couple of reasons. One is I wanted to be somewhere to make a fresh start and start my own company. And two, 
perhaps the more important reason is that I'd um, re-met a young lady I met many years before as a radiographer, <laughs> six years earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, now my wife, well then and still my wife, so I went, went over to Sydney to be with Sue and, and to start a company. And, when, and then the idea of the company was just to work with manufacturing organisations to help improve productivity, but to address largely the people side of the equation. And when I started that company, I had no money and not a clue about how I was going to do this or how if I haven't the slightest idea. Deep, but I knew that. The deep end is a good place to learn to swim, I've always been taught. <laughs> That's right. But I knew that. Um, I didn't, I wasn't unaware that I knew nothing. I realized, gosh, I know nothing. So I read books upon books. I bought, good Lord knows how many books on businesses and entrepreneurship and basic accounting, you name it. I just took a very engineering approach to it, that there must be stuff to know. I, I will know it and apply it. And I worked very, very hard, which is, it just goes without saying when you're starting a small company. And I had a group of friends, there were five of us, we got together and decided, hey, look, let's just work together. And uh, the, it was very much on the premise, let's just learn as much as we can. We will almost certainly fail. Every book I've read said we will fail but we will learn a lot. So let's just make this the best learning experience we can. And we were very clinical about what we did. Um, We were very experimental and we were very adventurous. So when we went into the idea of improving productivity, it wasn't with the intention of repeating things that had been tried before, that we wanted to be very brave and look at entirely new things. And um, I started reading about not just social psychology, but sociobiology and control factors, so social health gradients, all sorts of things that might apply in the organisation. And then we set about devising experiments and um, we're based on software to collect the data so we could get very accurate um, hard data about what worked and what didn't mm-hmm. and take a very experimental approach to seeing what worked and what didn't with improving productivity. And that was very successful. Um, and insofar that first we got a, very different view about what was important, what wasn't when it came to improving productivity. And secondly, it was very successful in terms of actually improving productivity. (laughs) Now, we started started getting, you know, what were considered at the time quite astonishing results. It was, you know, we were going into factories where they were struggling to get one or 2% improvement and we were maybe getting 30, 50, uh, you know, we got 70% at one factory which considered themselves the gold star couldn't be improved. And um, at one of the Heinz factories, it actually doubled the output over 30 weeks. Wow. Um, so the sorts of changes that we were getting were, were just significant, and it certainly got the attention of the market. So that went quite well. Um, we had our little ups and downs as a small company making mistakes, mm-hmm. but um, eventually we raised a total of, I think it was 7 million Australian venture capital funding. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was quite an interesting experience itself. I, I went in there. I was very clear to the funders. I made it what my expectations were. My expectation was that I would focus on the intellectual property development, like developing the thinking around productivity improvement and software specifications and how these tools would work. What I was looking for was support on the leadership side of actually running the business, my business, not mm-hmm. the customer's business. And also um, help with developing the software, which, you know, because we were prior to that relatively, you know, struggling with funding. We just made enough money to get by and 
we weren't ever in a position to properly invest in ourselves. And that became a most magnificent and unwanted, but nonetheless, magnificent education and making poor decisions. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow, somehow that business went from being really good at what it did and just getting on its feet and doing okay to being a complete failure and blowing all the money that went in. I mean, it was just an astonishing, I look back on it, you know, with a mixture of mirth and horror, but it was a very, very good education in how, you know, having lots of money in the bank and having, in theory, some good heads around the table doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. And it's working as a team and making good decisions is crucially important. And I I was horrified, of course, at the time because I lost everything I'd built. (laughs) Um, But we were successful. You know, what we did worked. It's just we failed to build an appropriate business model around it and make money from it. And um, anyway, there you go. So that all washed up. In 2001, I moved back to New Zealand and eventually repurchased that entire company and its IP for, I think, around 10,000 New Zealand dollars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I mainly did that, not because I would necessarily wanted to own the IP and start again, but just so there were no fish hooks in my backside if I did start something that someone else would come and say, oh, you're violating some IP that we happen to own over here. so that's so that's the sort of the broad picture. But in terms of what the business did, um, that was a bit interesting because when we walked into there, um, when we walked into a company, we went in with a very different thinking about how how companies work and what you might do to improve productivity. And to give you an example of perhaps some of the headline ideas that we would put on the table that were a little different to what people were hearing as we would say, it's all about behavior change. If people come to work tomorrow and do what they do today, you will likely get the same result tomorrow as today. It doesn't actually matter how much you change someone's motivation, engagement, wishes, intentions, beliefs, knowledge, anything. If that doesn't translate into a behavior change, then you've achieved nothing. Now, we came to that Because what we discovered was that too many times companies would focus on improving engagement or motivation or knowledge, do leadership training, whatever, and just presume that that would translate into useful behavioral change. Sometimes it did. Many times it didn't. And it was very easy to invest large sums and achieve nothing. Now, the upside to focusing on the behavior was that it lets you typify an organization in a very concrete, measurable way you are getting these behaviours, which could be as simple as people aren't coming to work on time or they're missing these um, quality observations, therefore poor quality is going out the door, whatever. There could be a whole range of specific behaviours. But when you focus just on changing those behaviours, it gives you a very clear and well-defined path of what you must achieve. And then we can then turn around and say, well, great, knowing that, what is appropriate training? What you know, is it a motivation engagement issue? You know, what are the reasons and what are the most appropriate solutions to change that behavior? So it gave us a very clear target so we could focus our activities down to things that actually made a difference. Yeah. And, and that's just it's simple, it's a simple thing to say, but if you take it on board, it really changes how you approach any organizational change. 
Yeah, and um, you know, obviously you were pioneering this work, um, you know, a number of years ago. But still, now I still don't think you know companies at any level are going to, you know, maybe they are, and you certainly would know a lot more than I. But um, you know that that you know social behavioural change is, is um, you know, is is where the the opportunity for growth is. And you know, when you talk about the the purpose, I guess of of motivating and engaging employees to increase productivity, you know, that's going to be a critical element to the success success of any business anywhere ever that's right yes and um yeah look that, that's look that's absolutely right it is it is the most important thing there are many other things that are important of course but if you don't have that to start with mm-hmm. you go nowhere yes if people are disinterested yeah and when it comes to their interest and their behavior, the second main point we put on the table, and it always surprises me when we do this, it's a revelation for organizations. And it is, by the way. They often say it isn't, and then we point out to them all the things they're doing that indicate that this is a big surprise to them. Because in general, they're doing things they wouldn't do if they didn't believe, what, what if they didn't believe, for example, that it was all about behavior change. But the second main point is that people do, we all do what we do based on how we feel more than what we know. If people were rational and just did things based on what they knew, then for starters, no one would smoke. You know, no one would drink so much. They'd probably marry someone different. You know, mm-hmm. our lives would be very different if we were like Dr. Spock and very rational, yeah. but we're not. And yet when we go into an organization, what we find is that how people feel is largely left out of the equation, that we're somehow expected to be information processing rational machines but we're simply not. And it's very important to consider that our style of leadership and communication and organizational structure and control gradients, how they affect how people feel. Um, You know, we are primates, we're not bugs. One of the things I learned early on through reading sociobiology texts was the massive difference in how primates and bugs behave. And the thing that I became astonished about was simply this, that if you look at the social insects, the haplodiploidic ones, ants, bees, wasps, and termites, they have a social structure which is determined by their biology. We as primates are completely different, and we have a a different social structure which is most or best expressed, say, in how hunter-gatherer groups would work. But in a modern-day setting, if you give someone an organisation and a piece of paper and a pen to organize it, they'll come back almost certainly with a design which is perfect for the social insects and not very appropriate for us primates at all. Mm. And that's a very key thing to back and think about. Why do we build organizations for bugs when we're primates? And part of that, there's a relatively long answer to that, but part of that is because we don't immediately see and understand the role that our feelings play and how we behave. We do imagine that people are rational, that they are going to just blindly follow kind of like game theory and, yes, and be motivated. Yeah. When this happens, yeah. do this. When that um, happens, do that. Yeah, and it's, it's simply not like that. So one of the things we dramatically try to impact is how people feel about their job. And I, I've had... You know, I can remember a specific day many years ago in the early 90s when I was working at a um, plastics place. It was actually a Heller's factory, 
hellers who did the headlights and electrical, you know, plastic yep. fittings for cars, electrical fittings. And I can remember in their injection molding team, I think from memory, there are about 40 machines, so about 40 people per shift. And one of the women on the line saying to me one day, gosh, you know, when my alarm goes off in the morning, I can't wait to get to work. I can't wait to get up and go to work. I used to hate it. Now I love it. Wow. And I remember thinking to myself, yes, that's we've achieved something here. Mm-hmm. You know, if people feel so strongly about coming to work, and that's become our normal. I mean, we've had people, I've had that equivalent statement made at company after company after company over the last 30 years. And, and that's how, it's, it's the sort of statement I look for now. I look for those little things to say, yes. You know, we're we're now really getting somewhere. Yeah, and that that you know having that is beneficial for everyone involved. You know, like it's not only you know if you look at it from the you know an organisation point of view, have you uh, you know the, your your employees are you know or, or um, the the staff are enjoying their time at work and they're being more productive and more engaged and you're getting you know more of a desired result, whatever that means. But also the fact that um, you know the employees are feeling like that that they're at, at a at a at a at a role in a role where they feel like you know they're excited to get to work. There's there's no downside to that. No, look, that's exactly right. And you'll, you, it's astonishing what can happen following that. I mean, and then until I became unwell, um, eighty months ago approximately, you know, I was I was working with a company in Auckland. I won't mention the name; everyone will know them. But it's a big New Zealand food manufacturing company. And when we started working with them a couple of years prior to that. Their lines, their main lines, the bread breadwinners for them, were running with about a maximum runtime without downtime events or major quality events of 40 minutes. We put some software on the line to monitor them and collect some baseline data, and 40 minutes was about as long as they could run these complex lines for before something popped out of the system. Mm-hmm. And it's not unusual. It's pretty normal. You know, it's not unusual for people to have 50 or 80 stops in a 480-minute shift um, but I sat down with the management and said, okay, well, we're going to start working with your team on the floor now. What I need you to decide right now is what you're going to do, how you're going to celebrate if you hit eight hours, you know, 480 minutes without a single stop. And they, they just looked astonished and said, well, you know, <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about that for a while. Mm-hmm. I said, well, no, I, you know, you should really plan this now because when that day comes, you cannot miss that opportunity that it would be an absolutely eye-popping thing to achieve. Now, I took some managers and some line staff to visit another customer of mine, which was working 12-hour shifts at the time on a much more complex line, and they were regularly hitting 12-hour shifts with zero downtime, which is a very, very good thing to achieve. And on the day we took them to that site, there happened to be, I think, a two-minute downtime event out of 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And the... um, the supervisor on the line apologised. She said, "I'm so sorry to me and to the customer. I'm so sorry that we've, you know, we've had downtime on the day that you've come here because we'd really like you to see the line running well." <laughs> and of course, the customer I was working with is going, "When does someone apologise about having like one or two minutes downtime out of twelve hours? It's insane." But within a month or so, they had gone from forty minutes running without a stop to thirteen hours. Holy moly! And, and, and how long? Um, in months? About a month. About a month. Yeah. Holy moly. And they had, of course, luckily they had thought ahead about their celebration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But it's just, 
And that was not achieved. We didn't change one thing on the line. Eventually we did, but it wasn't time. Initially, all we did was change is how people felt about the line stopping and how they felt about the line running well and giving them the right kind of feedback so they felt good about making motivated to make an effort and they felt some ownership, some a sense of control, agency, efficacy, whatever you know, works um, for you about about it. And, and then they just got on and did the job. And this is this is a general message we take to these companies is don't, you know, don't ask me to solve technical problems until we've solved the how people feel problem, because most of those technical problems will go away. Yeah. I mean there's a particular I mean I, there was a company I worked with in Sydney um, some some years ago now who had this a, a glass bottle filling line which had the maximum speed of the glass filler was 300 um, jars per minute. So they could do 9,000 jars in theory in a 30-minute period, but they were averaging about um, 2,300, and they had collected five years of data. And when I started working with them, they presented me with a pile of CDs back then <laughs> of all this data for me to uh, do some analysis of and tell them how to improve productivity. But I never, ever ever looked at one of those CDs. I perhaps still have them somewhere in a box in my office upstairs. All I did was go out to the line, look at the feedback people got and the leadership they got and realize it was inappropriate. So we, I said to the company, well, all we're going to do is focus on um, the feedback they get. So we got cardboard and tape and covered up all the computer screens they had with their fancy systems providing way too complicated feedback to people and just confusing them. And put some really simple measures up there about uptime and downtime. Mm -hmm. And then took all the staff aside and had a chat to them about all we want you to do is just focus on these very simple things. Now, within two weeks, um, actually, I should tell you that the company asked me to set a goal of what we thought we could improve productivity to. And they offered me to restructure the contract so that I would only get paid, but I get paid better if I hit that goal. But all that's very cunning. They were trying to apply the same psychology to me as mm. I was applying to them. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and so we agreed that the target would be 2,700 jars per 30 minutes as an average and from 2,300. Well, I came back two weeks later and they had hit um, not 3,000 jars a minute, but 2,970 right. <laughs> so over a 30-minute yeah. period up from um, – no, no, not so – sorry, I got that wrong. 9,000 – jars in 30 minutes would have been a perfect score. Yeah. They got 8,970. They're only 30 jars wow. off a perfect score. Wow. And that was within two weeks. Wow. And that wasn't with solving a single problem on the line. Now, that was a bit of a peak. It was unsustainable for various reasons. The, basically, the rest of the plant could keep up. But long term, the productivity was up 70% on previous production without picking up a screwdriver or touching the line in any manner. Yeah. And it's that it, it's that experience that we want companies to have right at the get-go yeah. so they can go, wow, okay, let's rethink this. Most of these problems we think of as technical problems, well, maybe we do have some, but before we invest too much in them, let's get the motivation and engagement sorted first yeah. because a lot of the problems at that stage will will go away. Yeah, so the, the social problems rather than the technical problems, it seems that um, that was sort of the focus. So like at, at risk of, you know, oversimplifying a, your career, how do we change the way people feel about the work they do? Whew. Well, 
Um, okay, well, I'll just I'll mention then a couple of principles that we um, we introduce into into companies. I mean, the the, the accounts your questions, we want people to feel what we call intrinsically motivated and cognitively engaged, and a key part of that is to only give them feedback on things they have control over. If, if for example, and, and also to shift that focus not just onto results but also onto effort. If, for example, you're working on a line and the only feedback you get is on how many widgets you get out, and let's say, just to make a number up, we expect 1,000 widgets out in your shift, and you got 900. Therefore, we go, jeepers, Sean, you didn't quite hit your target. But if Sean had worked his backside off all shift, and the only reason he didn't get his target was because of something outside of his control, a material shortage, a you know, raw material quality issue, or a machine breakdown, which he had no control over, then he's going to be pretty miffed. I'm going to feel pretty miffed about getting this negative feedback. If, though, the feedback was about my effort, gosh, Sean, you didn't hit the target today, but it wasn't through lack of effort, you know, we would have done much worse if you didn't try so hard in those difficult circumstances. If the focus becomes on my effort, well, you've now put me in control. And this is crucial because I'm in control of my effort. So if effort is the currency on the manu in the, or any work environment, but I'm thinking of a manufacturing environment here, well, that's great because I can deliver that every day. And the organization perhaps can accept that sometimes things don't go well. But we find that generally that's not the case. In fact, we always find that we go into an organization that there are measures there on output and people get good or bad feedback based on whether they hit their targets or not. But generally speaking, those targets are largely outside the control, achieving those targets, sorry, is outside of the control of the guys on the line. Um, there's just too many factors. There's just too many opportunities for breakdowns and other things to occur. So how um, would you how, how would you subjectively uh, measure effort then on a, on a scalable basis? Okay, good question because we don't have a sensor for that, and um, if we did, probably no one would allow us to insert it. <laughs> but the you, that was, that's where good leadership and good relationships comes in. I don't believe you can objectively measure effort from a distance. There are some things. We, we did set out to do that. And on some lines, we could measure the time it took people to respond to a light going off to say the caps were low or something. But we, 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 back, we backed off that approach in the end because what we realized we were doing is just putting people under unreasonable pressure to perform and react you know, like a, as part of, a, a part of the machine. Yeah. So in the end, it came down to, hey, as leaders, you need to form good relationships, have good communication with your staff so that you know. Because the, here is a reality. If you go out to any team, whether it's a sports team or a factory worker team or a management team, within that team amongst the peers, everyone will know who's pulling their weight and who isn't. Agreed. Everyone will know if there's any social loafers there riding on the rest. So why wouldn't the management know? Because they're not close enough. So given that every team can self-assess each other, whenever we ask teams to, you know, report across their team as to who they value the most and blah, 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 it's very consistent. They have got a really good insight as to who is adding value to the team. So the challenge for the manager is to spend enough time to get close enough to the team that they get that same feed of information so they can start providing the feedback. 
when we do rely a lot on peer review. So when we are in an organization and things start to go well and we're giving them feedback, we ask them to rate the team, rate each other, support the members amongst them who are putting in the effort and doing well. And they love doing that. It's very motivating. People love to be able to say, oh, gosh, this guy here, man, he's great. That lady, she's so sharp on this or that. They love the opportunity to do that because mm-hmm. it makes them feel less of a number. Yep. It gives them a sense of input, and it's fair. From their point of view, it's equitable and fair. They're not being judged from afar. They're having some say. And one of the most successful programs we, we helped, which wasn't entirely our idea, so it was, we, we developed this in partnership with a customer in Australia at a very large uh, metal manufacturing um, business, the processing business. Um, but the, the just as an example, where the remuneration, the bonuses for the staff were based on this peer feedback as well as the feedback. So it was divided into three parts. One part was peer feedback. One was, one was assessment from their one-up manager. And the third was the overall performance of their business unit. Wow. But the fact that it had a peer component in there that was equally weighted amongst the rest was seriously motivating for the staff. Now, they knew that occasionally they could hoodwink a manager. Yeah. And they knew that, well, the business unit may or may not do well. That might be a little bit out of my control. But what they did know also was they couldn't fool those around them. Yeah. So there was no hiding from that. And that was a very powerful and effective way of getting people on board. I can I can imagine, and um, and an idea that can be used at a business of any scale as well. Yes, that's that's right. I mean, all of us can. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's it's a bit like the world being round, or actually, an oblate spheroid. It's a simple idea. These are simple ideas, but it's not obvious that the world was roundish. You know, for a very long time, yes. we thought it was flat. And some interesting people still do, in fact. But, <laughs> you know, so. Just because something is simple doesn't mean it's obvious. Everything that we do and what we suggest companies do is simple. Yeah. But it's it's clearly not obvious because generally people aren't doing it. Yeah. Um, um so 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 yeah. obviously, you know, praising or recognizing um effort and 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 trying your best to, to measure that, you know, objectively and um, you know, over over results and things that aren't necessarily in the the individual's control within an organization. Um, you know, what, what other sort of factors are um, you know, influencing the way that people feel about work? Um well a very important one is being heard. There's people will accept you know, it's part of our biology, in fact, part of how we're wired to behave socially to accept leadership. You know, hunter-gatherer groups have leaders. Humans have evolved to accept leadership. But with certain social contracts in place, and one of them, and a very important one, is to be heard. They cannot overstate how important it is to go out and ask and listen to what people have to say. People are much more likely to accept a decision or follow the direction of a leader who they believe has listened to them. And secondly, this idea of distributive fairness, and that is fairness is applied equally to all, no favoritism, it's a meritocracy in some regard, is very, very important. So those are two, not the only things by any stretch, Mm -hmm. but those are two that I'd say right on day one, make darn sure you're getting right. (laughs) Treat everybody the same and ask and listen, ask and listen, ask and listen. You know, 
And, and I guess you know the 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 you know people take like take a bit of ownership of a problem if they've been um, you know incorporated into it to its solving. And I think. Um, you know, possibly from from my experience, and you would certainly be able to know more. But even if you don't necessarily follow their um, the individual's um, idea through to to action, the fact that they've been uh, at least involved in the process is sometimes just as important. Look, it is, and I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. When of something we we coach leaders to say, when we. When we ask people on the line what frustrates them the most, say in a, I'm speaking of a factory environment here, but it would imply anywhere, it's when there's a problem that someone from the outside, the manager walks in and, and says, oh, do this, do that, something they were going to do anyway. Therefore, they don't get any credit for doing it because they were told to do it, right? And it's very disempowering. So one of the things we encourage leaders to say when they walk out to their staff, if there is an issue, is to say this or ask this question. Is there anything you would like me to do to help? And what that does is it puts the employee in control. They can say, no thanks, we've got this under control. And it's a very empowering thing to allow them to say. It allows them to say, no, you don't need to poke your nose into this. Most managers tend to approach it in a way that injects them into the problem. Okay, so what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? We, 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 we. And that's perhaps something they were encouraged to do. But I'm suggesting that you don't do that. I'm suggesting that you give that person the opportunity of actually telling you, I've got this under control. Mm -hmm. Now, if they haven't, then they won't say that. They're not going to be um, putting themselves in a position to fail. They may say, look, frankly, I haven't got a clue, mate. What do you reckon? Well, it's fine. That's your time to step in, but always given the option of being in control of, of applying their skills and knowledge and then getting the credit for it. Yeah. One of the programs we run is everything we do is simple, but it's, this one's very simple. It's called Praise and Ask. Every time you see, have any interaction with someone, either praise what they're doing, reinforce desired behavior, or ask, so how is this going? You know, is there anything you'd like me to do to help? You know, is there anything as a business we could do that would make your life easier? Whatever it might be, but either praise or ask every time you engage with someone. And um, that is a very simple but very powerful strategy to get people's minds focused on work. They're either getting praise because they're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. or achieving a good result, making a good effort, which reinforces that behavior very effectively, or they're starting to think. Because when we ask someone a question, in fact, one of the questions we ask everyone in an organization as part of our training is, why do we ask questions? And the general answer is to get an answer. You ask something because you want to know something. And we'd say, yeah, well, that's a reason to ask a question. But the number one reason to ask a question is to show that you care, that you're interested, that the other person is part of the solution, Mm -hmm. not part of the problem. We ask a question to get them thinking because one of the goals we want is people to be thinking about what they do. We don't learn by doing something repetitively. We don't learn by getting yelled at. We learn when we think about what we do. You can take most people who've been typing for 20 or 30 years, put a keyboard in front of them and throw your jacket over it and say, where's the X key? And they don't know. Now, touch typists will know which finger and which row because um, they're trained. But for most people, they can be pecking away at a keyboard like a chicken 
for decades and still not know where the X key is. Just doing something repetitively doesn't mean you learn a damn thing. Particularly in factories, this is the case. The learning stops very soon into the job. What we want to do is create a culture where people are praised for good and get asked questions all the time so they're encouraged to think, why do you think that's, that's interesting? Why do you think that was? And one of the statements, again, we coach people to say is, well, do you think about it? I'll think about it too. And I'll catch up with you tomorrow and let's share, share our ideas. Now, if you think about that from the perspective of an employee, if their boss is going to think about something and they're going to think about it, that's very motivating. Mm. You know, we're working as peers now. Yeah, that's so interesting. Ask and praise. Yeah, well, praise and ask by chance, but yes, ask and praise will do. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, I don't think we trademarked ask and praise. You, you can go for that. <laughs> that's, um, that's great. And, and you know, like, um, you know, the fact that you've had such, you know, huge successes in, in, in by the sounds of it, in, you know, very much factory settings where it is a very repetitive job, um, you know, sh- showcases the fact that, um, you know, it can be just, it could be even more so effective if on a, on a smaller scale when people are, people's jobs are, are a little bit more engaging probably um, just by the very nature of them. Yeah, well, look. Yeah, you're quite right. You can make people, you can make any job engaging by giving the right feedback. And there's no better example than golf. Imagine that with golf, there was no scoring. So you never knew who got bragging rights, who had to pay for the beer, or whether you did better from last time. Imagine if golf was simply walking and whacking a ball any number of times, didn't matter how many times you hit it, just eventually get in that hole there. I mean, would people play golf? Not at all. I don't think so much. Sorry? <laughs> Not at all, I said. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, look, the only people who play golf probably need to get a relationship counsellor, you know. <laughs> They'd be escaping something else. The truth is that the joy of golf is not actually playing the game as much as it is the scoring, the, you know, the fact that you make an effort but you can't get a good result every time. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. The wind yeah, how you how you're feeling? There's lots of variables that play a role. There's a certain random element to it, but you get really good feedback, and you're in control. So if we can make golf interesting with a little bit of feedback and a little bit of scoring and a little bit of commentaryship, surely we can make a job in a factory interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and that's really our goal in all of this is to create this social environment and the leadership environment so that people feel at least as motivated about work as they would about golf. And um, and this is successful. It's proven to be the case. You can. Yeah, yeah. And, and when we talk about a social environment, are you referring to culture? Like is culture the, the, the correct word for that? Oh, absolutely, yes. And, um, and when we talk about culture, um, we are talking about specifically creating an organization which is appropriate for us, the peer bonding primates, <laughs> and, and impacts how we feel about what we do. And so when, you, when we then say, well, gosh, well, if that's the case, what are the, what are the things that people see? You know, what does the social and emotional landscape look like when someone lifts their head up? Well, so much of it comes down to the style of leadership and the style of communication. And, um, and again, we have very simple things we introduced to help get people get their head around it. 
praise and ask is one, you know, but it's changing all of the communication that people get from their leadership to one that's focused on a praise and ask model. That will improve things right from the get-go. But there are other really basic ideas too, like, for example, it's not okay for your emotions to become someone else's problem. Now, what we commonly find in organisations is that people further down the social gradient and on the factory floor are asked to deal with the emotions of people above them. So-and-so is angry because we didn't hit this target and they're ranting and raving. Well, you better not say that. They might yell at you or get angry. Well, this is just not okay. You know, it's totally okay to have emotions. We all do. It's part of being human and makes life a bit interesting. But it's, boy, boy, it's not okay for us to behave in a manner that others have to manage our emotions any more than they should have to clean up after our lunch or anything else Mm -hmm. we do. So that as a cultural idea is something we introduce very, very quickly. And when we, one of the strategies we we implement at organisations we work with is something we call a culture workshop and where we interview, might be anywhere from, you know, however many people I've got, I think 550 was the most number of people I interviewed in small groups over a few days. And um, we'll interview a very large, you know, interview everybody in the organisation and we'll talk to them about, you know, what, what we're looking for in there is what impacts their day, what makes for a good day, what makes for a bad day. And we ask those very questions. When the very first question we ask people is, hey, look, it may have never, ever happened, but if you were to have had a bad day at work, why would that be? And, of course, people burst out laughing at the silly thought they wouldn't have had a bad day at work and spill the beans on, you know, all the things that get up their bloody nostril. Mm-hmm. But it's nine times out of ten they talk to us about how they're treated. It's, it's only the absolute minority do they talk about the computer systems that don't work so well or something else. It's generally how they're treated. It's their style of leadership and communication they experience that makes for a bad day. So when we understand that, we then draw up some behavior guidelines, normally in the form of a chart with a horizontal line across the middle, which is the, and we have above the line and below the line behaviors, very, very, very focused around behaviors. For example, we don't yell, <laughs> we don't swear, you know, we do ask, we do this. And so it's very, it's, it's not aspirational. It's not like there's nothing fluffy about it. It's very, very concrete. Mm-hmm. So then you're able to take that document and we say, well, we want a laminated copy on every single desk in the business, on every wall and every office where any more times than more than one person meet, there must be one of these documents. And then at every meeting, at every gathering, we give each other feedback on it. Hey, love this meeting. So we have a meeting review, which says you've got to give it a score one to five. So we go around the room. Each person's got no more than 10 seconds to say the meeting was a three, you know, could have been better if, you know, I like this next person. And it's zero contention. So no feedback, no criticism. We just each listen to the feedback and that feedback is tied to aspects of the culture document, you know, it wasn't focused yeah. or people yelled or whatever it was. And everybody learns from that. And on we move, we find that creates a very, very fast cycle of change. In fact, our expectation is that you should feel the difference in the culture within two weeks. Wow. Often when we started an organization, they say to us, you know, how long do you think this will take? And I say, how long do you think it'll take? <laughs> and generally people tell me, oh, 18 months, takes about 18 months to change culture. And I say, okay. If you can't see the difference in a fortnight, then sack us. Because it doesn't take 18 months, and it doesn't take six months, it doesn't take two months. 
you should see the changes in the culture very, very quickly because there's nothing magic that's going to happen in six or 12 or 18 months' time. In fact, it's less likely to happen down the track based on work we're doing today than it is to happen today. Yeah. It either happens right away or it doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think that's a real misunderstanding about culture change. And I think it's very convenient that many people promoting culture change say it'll take 18 months. I guess it, yeah. it <laughs> gives you a bit of buffer yeah, before yeah, you yeah. get sacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very interesting that, um, you know, because uh, like – Culture almost seems intangible, like it's just the collective product of a of a group, and um, you know that it can be quite hard to externally influence. Um, but you know, I guess what your work's showing is that um, not only is it is it very easy to influence, but um, you know you can make a, a significant difference, you know, very very quickly. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. The way you describe culture is the generally accepted norm. That's a bit amorphous and hard to define. I would strongly argue against that. In fact, I regularly do strongly argue against that. And I, I say no, it's behavior. It's nothing magical. It's not a it's not part of the electromagnetic spectrum or something. It's things you can see, feel, and touch. You should be able to walk in and feel the culture immediately. The first thing when I get taken to a factory, I assess is the way people walk. And we joke in my company, about the cognitively exited walk. The way people walk when they don't really care. Plop, 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 plop. The way, the look on their face. When they stop and see a mate, do they fold their arms and lean on the door and yarn? And, or is it really quick, touch on the shoulder, hey, mate, just got to quickly say this and got to race off and do that. Yep, and they're walking quickly and purposefully. And each time they arrive at a new location, they immediately do something. Or each time they arrive at a new location, do they put their hands in the pockets, look around and see how much time they can spill. And you can tell an enormous amount about a culture in a factory environment by just looking at the way people walk. What did you call it? A cog cognitively walk. vacant walk, is that what you called it? Uh, yeah, a cog cognitively exited. exited so we, we talk yep. about this idea of cognitively engaged and cognitively exited. I'll just briefly describe that in, in, in as lay terms as I can. Simply put, cognitive, cognitively engaged means um, I feel good about what I do. I'm going to make an effort because I'll feel really good about having made that effort. So if, if those things are true, then I'm cognitively engaged, I'm motivated, I'll give it a go. But when someone's cognitively exited, they're taking an emotionally safe position. They're saying to themselves, well, I didn't really fail because I didn't really try. And failure only counts when you try. So they, because they expect to fail, they therefore don't try very hard. And therefore, they don't feel bad when they do fail. Because we all know how much it hurts when we try hard and don't quite get there. You only have to look at a grand final of any sports competition. Mm. The losers bawling their eyes out, growing adults devastated, they didn't quite make their goal. So it's very easy. So cognitively exited means taking this emotionally safe position. And that's where we would find easily 90% of employees in the organizations we go to. So the question is, how do you then make it emotionally safe for people to try? Well, your very first step is to focus on effort, not results. Your second step is to get strongly into praise and ask. Always praise an existing behavior or ask a question to get people thinking if things aren't quite the way you want. And the last one, in terms of the absolute basics, is never 
allow your negative emotions to become their problem. So they have to deal with that. Well, that's what they'll do. They will deal with that by being evasive and taking an emotionally safe position. That's so interesting, that cognitively exited um, sort of frame. I mean, I'd say that um, you, you said that you know, some people will spend their work life like that. I would think there's some people that probably spend their entire life like that, you know, with the, the, the risk of putting in effort because they, you know, it's easier to say that it didn't work because I didn't try rather than uh, it didn't work because I, um, you know, I, I didn't do a good enough job. And I think that, um, you know, it's that very risk of, of, of um, failure, you know, the, the 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 emotion. If you really try, can be can be extremities both sides. It can be extreme joy, like you said at a grand final, if, if you're taking a sporting context, or it can be you know extreme, um, you know, the opposite of of um, you know, like you said, grown grown adults crying. Um, but it's the it's some people aren't willing to take that risk that risk of you know like you know, either side that they're, they're happy just to sit in the middle not try not do anything and, and you know observation would be i think that some people go through their entire lives like that not just their their working day look i think you are absolutely right uh, you've hit the nail on the head and, and is that a life worth living you know i've it's it's not a job worth working you know, we should be motivated we should we should be excited we should we should you should feel safe mm -hmm. to take a risk and try. And one of the things I feel frustrated with sometimes is the way as a society we deal with failure, we refer to failure. You know, we, we, we celebrate the successes. Sometimes we chop down the tall puppies, but we, we don't celebrate the people who just tried bloody hard. And maybe other people's successes were built on the hard work of others sometimes who just weren't lucky enough. I mean, you know, I. I've got a, a fairly strong view about success and failure and opportunity. It is largely luck. You know, I've met many very successful people financially, you know, done, done very, very well, and largely it's luck. Now, they would argue against that sometimes, and I, I'll, I'll deliberately take up the challenge and argue with them mm -hmm. because invariably, as I said, they'd say it's all about making decisions, and I'd say, yes, I'll tell you some of the best decisions I ever made. I chose to be male. I chose to be white. I chose to be middle class. I chose to be born when education was free and I could go to university. You know, yeah, yeah. I didn't. It's so much is luck. Yes. Have you read? Out, I'm, so sure, I'm sure you have. Have you read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Actually, no, I haven't. Oh well, that book is 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 almost entirely about what you've just said. Um, you should you should add, oh, okay. add that to your list. That, <laughs> and he he talks about um all that like you know people like Bill Gates for example, and he goes over you know his his sort of uh, success in that he happened to be in the one school in the one state that happened to have a computer you know three years before anyone else, and they happened to have one teacher that that was engaged in software development, and all these sort of critical factors that you know that um, if weren't in place would have not led to him today and there was also another thing about they um, they analysed birth dates of, of professional athletes and um, a huge portion portion of them were born at the start of the year and they, they realised that because when they were born at the start of the year they would be the, the oldest in their in their grade whilst they were still in age grades up till you know 19 or 20 and therefore when you're slightly older when you get to a you know transformative time like say 13 to 15 you're you're a lot bigger and you can even being a year older you can be bigger and stronger and then by being being a stronger you you get better and when you get better you get more attention then getting more attention you get better again and so they found that you know even with professional athletes that just being born at the start of the year can play a huge role in in the way that their um you know their career turns out yeah look that is 
Yeah, that is so true, man. That is so true. In fact, I'll just mention one thing about my life, which which I've often reflected on and talked about, is by chance, what was thought to be a good thing at the time was one of the worst things ever done for me. When I was young and being blind didn't matter, because I was still at junior school, essentially, primary intermediate, and I skipped an entire year. So I was doing very well at school. And so when I went to school the next year, I discovered that I wasn't with my peers anymore. I'd, I'd missed an entire year out and was now in the year ahead. So I was now the youngest in the class by far. But more importantly, I was hated. <laughs> I mean, no one, <laughs> no one welcomed me with open arms and my friends were disappointed I'd abandoned them and the new bigger boys, older boys, were not very thrilled that I'd joined them. And that was it just it was one of the worst decisions. And I had no say in it. I had no idea. I didn't even know it was happening. I just literally turned up to school and found I'd missed a year out. Yeah. There'd been a discussion between my parents in the school because I was doing well and I never did well again. Wow. Yeah, there's um there's a lot of factors, you know, and and you know, obviously some are, are hugely based on on luck or just sort of happenstance. Um, I've got one more question just in regard to um you know I guess uh, you know people in in a, in a um you know a commercial environment, is that you know can you train the wrong people to fit in you know and and you know. I was sort of there's uh, Howard Schultz, who's the founder of Starbucks, um, was asked a, a question once. He said, um, they, "They said to him, um, how do you uh, train all your staff at Starbucks to smile? You know, there's millions of staff and they all smile." And he said, "That's the easiest thing I do." They said, "How do you do it?" And he said, "I just hire people that already smile." Mm. And so, you know, my question to, to you is, you know, when you go into an organisation. Are there sometimes just the wrong people and they just need, you know, you can't train them no matter the effort or the the, the, the level of work you put into them that it's just not going to work? Or is it the opposite? That Look, um, the, the answer is yes, but generally not at the lower end of the organisation. Um, generally, I find that further up the organisation, sometimes people are in the wrong positions, it's not a natural fit, which doesn't mean they cannot be trained, they can't. They can't learn, but it's not instinctive. It's not natural for them, and it's hard work. And one thing's certainly true. With many organisations, not all by any means, but many organisations I've worked with, when we've gone through the culture change, that it's been such a change that a group of people have left the organisation. Never anyone from down the bottom third of the organisational hierarchy, they love the changes, but they often meet managers who will not accept the changes that we're introducing. And one of the reasons they won't accept the changes is that they see it as their whatever given right to be able to talk down to people, to yell at people and behave. And they really enjoy this position of social power and they take some satisfaction in that. And to be told that, no, this all changes now, you're going to have to be a more considerate, caring, insightful person. It's just too much. Now, the funny thing is, is that some of those people who have left under those circumstances I've gone on to meet in the future, and they have now changed. <laughs> but at the time, they couldn't imagine it. Yeah. And I have had, you know, without naming any, mind you, what I'm about to describe, you could probably fit half a dozen people I've met in my, my career, but I've had CEOs berate me 
yell and swear at me for 30 minutes after I've presented them with this new behavioral guideline chart saying, and I've had actual CEOs of major, you know, multi-hundred million dollar New Zealand businesses tell me that it's their right to yell and swear and talk down to their staff. And that's the only way that you can run a business. But the amount of time it takes to be nice to people is just preposterous. And, you know, I've, I've had to battle with them until they're gone because that's the only way the organization's going to improve and move past this position that they're stuck in. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess it's, so it's, it's, not, it's not so much yeah. a can you train the wrong person, but is the person willing to be trained? Yeah, that's right. And sometimes they're not, and I accept that. I say it's a self-selection process. Yeah. I'm never going to make that judgment on your behalf, and I encourage the organization never to make that judgment on anyone else's behalf. I mean, one of the surprising things for me has been how much people have at times changed. I'll give you two very fast examples. At one very large snack food company in Sydney, we had the union rep there, let's use first names, a guy called Dave, who absolutely set about sabotaging our program because he saw us working with management, therefore a bunch of bums and should be given a hard time. And he was the most difficult, obnoxious, obstructive, Australian, you could hope to meet. You know, he was full of rude language and great jokes, I must say, but nonetheless, always inappropriate ones. But he was the most difficult character ever. And I went to him one day, I took him aside to Dave, I have a challenge for you. I want you to take a bloody break for two weeks, just look at your staff, your team around you, and then decide whether what we're doing is good for them or not. And if you think what we're doing is not good for the team on the floor, then by all means, man, Get your pointy stick out and poke me right up the backside. But don't stop us doing something that your staff actually want and enjoy. So he did. He was a bit affronted, but he sat back for a couple of weeks. Well, two things. One, he went on to be our train-the-trainer on site, our major <laughs> advocate. <laughs> and secondly, when that organisation built a new plant up in Brisbane, they paid and relocated him up there to be, to be the main staff trainer. Wow. He completely flipped. Now, the thing is, why was he so difficult in the first place? Because he cared and the wrong thing was done. And what I learned from Dave when I met many more people like him in my career is that the people who care the most are often the most difficult to deal with are the most, you know, the ones who don't care just throw their hands up and just settle for anything. But the people who care are actually very difficult. They fight back. They're pushing back against the system. And they very often go on to be our greatest advocates. Um, That's an interesting point, yeah. Yeah, like I, I, I could tell you a dozen equivalent stories in some detail about people, the various Daves that I've met who flip from one extreme to the other because they care. Yeah. And that's why they're difficult. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, everything you've said in the last, I don't know how long it's been, an hour or so has been insanely interesting. And, um, you know, it's its its no wonder that you've had a you know a very successful career doing that, particularly with some of the results you've talked about. Um, I do now sort of want to, I guess, transition because I know, I, I, you know, you're, you're interesting for a number of reasons. And, um, you know, one of your other sort of, you know, passions on the side has sort of been, um, you know, with regards to, to young people and, and, and mentorship. Um, do you want to maybe give us a, a bit of a... Um, you know, not so much how it started, but sort of, you know, I guess what you what you've been doing with young people, and um, and you know, maybe some of the results you've seen, and um, and and why you do it. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, look, early in my career or my life, I realised that um, largely 
for me, how I was managed and handled, raised as a child, played a very big impact. And it wasn't all positive. <laughs> you know, some, some was okay and, and some was abysmal. And I was just painfully aware of that, that what we go on to achieve as adults is very strongly rooted in what we experience as children. And I didn't want any child associated with me to experience some of the negative, unhelpful aspects that I had suffered in my youth. And I wanted them to experience the best that I had. And I just had a really, I can't say why I would, exactly I felt that way, but I, I, it was just a, something that was very important to me. So from a very long or very early age, I set about trying to help others. When I was at university, in fact, at one stage I had no money, I took on a uh, accommodation situation where I got free rent and use of the car in return for looking after four children, three boys aged uh, three, six, and nine, and an 11-year-old girl. <laughs> oh, boy, what a lesson. Um, you know, trying to do an engineering degree while raising four kids um, because the parents were away working. And Anyway, it, was, it gave me an awful lot of insight, and I was a totally unusual – I wasn't a much of a parent because I didn't have a clue how to do it. So I then set about thinking really hard, what's the best way to get these kids happy, get them doing their homework, and – you know, I learned a lot and it gave me a lot of insight and I got a lot of satisfaction out of that. And when I left that arrangement and finished university, I didn't want to leave that feeling. So I got involved with youth groups, just helping kids out in any way I could. And to start with, not in a particularly big way because I was young and I was busy with my own career. But when I, became, when I came back to New Zealand in 2001, I really wanted to do this more formally and more usefully. And I looked around various organizations and became involved with a Nelson organization called One to One Mentoring. Now, it was actually part of the Big Brothers, Big Sisters group informally. It was following the Big Brothers, Big Sisters mentoring model, but the organization in New Zealand wasn't formally aligned with Big Brothers, Big Sisters International. Well, that's, that changed shortly after my involvement. And initially, I was just simply a mentor, mentoring a young lad who's now coming up for 30 in a very fine young man. Um, but I got more involved in the organization. I got excited about this idea of taking it national and setting up a national office, which I helped do and was involved with up until 18 months ago when I became unwell. So I got very involved with Big Brothers, Big Sisters as a mentoring program. It's a very good model. It's well-researched, very safe for the children. It's very well thought through. But in parallel to that, I was also um, helping out young fellows in general, some who just get referred to me, I spent a bit of time with, and I was also um, running a, a karate with a friend to start with, and then on my own eventually, and my friend moved to Wellington, running a karate club, in, which we set up in Victory, which is perhaps the poorer part of Nelson, deliberately to um, collect some youth from that area who might need a bit of input. and. Yes, it was a karate club, and we punched and kicked each other occasionally, but it was very much an op uh, what I tried to create, a very safe place for, for children where they learned a lot more than just how to do a push-up and kick a bag. One of the very key messages that I push through karate is this idea is that you are strong when people feel safe around you, which is a very different way of thinking about mm. strength. Normally when we ask children – you know, what, what is strong? What's a strong man? They're always big. He's got big muscles and people do what they tell him. People are scared of him, whatever. 
but I don't think that's a very healthy measure of strength. And I really push this idea that you are strong when people feel safe around you, not when they're scared of you. That's a great Because people wouldn't... Yeah, well, generally, people don't fear your strength. They fear your weakness. They fear your lack of self-control, your lack of boundaries, your lack of respect, and things like that. They, they don't fear. They don't fear your strength. I had been, I, I had been to many, many schools from literally one end of the country to the other. Uh, for three years, I travelled around the country talking to kids in schools. And one of the things I always did was pick up all of the kids who are, you know, having troubles, who might be suspended or recently expelled sit them down and have a big chat about how they got to where they were and they, what they might do about it. I've just, I had a real passion for youth because most of these youth I just see is really unlucky. And, you know, the stories that you hear when you do that, if it doesn't make you cry, well, there's something wrong with you. They are dreadful. You know, the, you cannot hear these stories and expect these kids to go out into the world and be adjusted and a normal functioning part of our society. Mm. You know, so you can't, and from my perspective, well, I certainly couldn't know this and not be moved to do something about it. I literally couldn't enjoy my dinner at night at home knowing there were kids within hundreds of metres of my house being beaten or gone hungry. And, um, you know, the number of times I've spent, you know, I've spent time with youth, like I used to take food to my karate club because there would be kids would come in at 5.30 who hadn't eaten that day and the sandwich I'd give them would be the first bit of food they had. Now, how were they supposed to get through their school day? Pay attention, not misbehave. Mm. That's just not possible. So, I, I yes, I have a very strong interest in youth and um, Again, it comes back to something we talked a while back about luck. These are unlucky kids. They're not bad kids. Mm. And their luck was not of their making. Sometimes our luck is a little bit of our own making, you know. One of my favorite cartoons is of a guy kneeling by his bed praying, and it says, please, God, give me a break. Let me win lotto. And the next caption is a voice booming down from the heavens saying, no, you give me a break. Buy a ticket. (laughs) Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you've got to be in to win. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we make our own luck, but these kids haven't. Yeah. And and that's where my interest lies. Yeah. Um, I had per- first-hand experience as a child of things going well and things not going well, and I know which one I preferred. Um, and I wanted to extend that hand to as many children that I could. Mm. And I, I know, you know, from from knowing a bit about you, that you've done some some tremendous work. And I know that there's, um, you know, more, more than likely hundreds of kids around the country, or without a doubt, hundreds of kids around this country um, that are, have been a, you know, a product of your um, your caring and the, and the work you've done. So, um, I guess, you know, yeah, thank you very much. And, and I know you've got a you've you've written a book, um, you know, one long summer, which um, which sort of I guess encapsulates a, a story of a of a young lad over over a summer. Oh, look, it does. And by chance, that young lad is called Matt. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go, yes. Um, yeah, look, and the, the idea of the story is simply to capture some of the lessons I've learned through business and improving you know, work, the things we've talked about today, some of the things I've learned through mentoring and working with youth. And it's just a story about how a young lad goes from a maybe not ideal situation to learning to deal with bullying and learning to establish uh, some self-belief I mean, self-belief is such an important thing for children. Mm. Um, 
much more important, and I look, this is something I've talked about a lot over the years, is the difference between self-belief and self-esteem. I mean, building someone up with self-esteem is not necessarily a gift. With self-esteem comes a sense of entitlement. I deserve, and therefore, thing you don't get things, well, somebody got it wrong, but not me, because I deserved it. Mm-hmm. Whereas self-belief is more about having agency and um, a belief in your capacity to change things around you and efficacy, I know I can achieve this. Mm-hmm. So that when things don't go well, you don't blame anyone else. You just say, well, I've got to try a bit harder. Uh, self-belief is what drives motivation and and resilience and pushing through when things are tough because it's up to what you do. And if you have that belief it's about what you do and you can do, then you're likely to be motivated to get on and do it. So... Um, For me, the number one gift I try and give a child is this idea of agency or self-belief. Hey, you make an effort. You can do this. You can go and do any job you want, get a degree, whatever you want. You can do it. It starts now. It starts. This is how it starts. It's one step at a time. Here's something you can do today. Just as a a small example, I had a young fellow once who didn't – wasn't very physically strong and, you know, was being bullied and what have you. So I said, okay, well, how about trying some chin-ups? How many chin-ups can you do? And on his first day, he managed three chin-ups. I dug into my wallet and gave him 30 cents and said, there you go. I'll give you 10 cents for each chin-up you can do. So once a week, you can come around here, you can have three shots, and for however many chin-ups you can do in three bursts, I'll give you 10 cents. Well, it didn't take long before he was doing 100 (laughs) chin-ups. He'd do a set of 40 and two sets of 30, and I'd pay him 10 bucks a week. Now, what it did for that young fella's self-belief was crazy. And then I said to him, well, go to school. You challenge other kids to do some chin-ups on the monkey bars and see who can beat you. Now, once everyone else realized they couldn't do 10 and he could do 100, no one hassled him anymore. Yeah. Of course, it doesn't. doing lots of chin-ups doesn't mean you can look after yourself, but the kids didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> and But what it did for his self belief was just massive you know because no one he wasn't if i'd said to him i'll do this and you better do 100 chin-ups he wouldn't have believed me i wouldn't have believed it no one else would have believed it but he did it and that was a magnificent day for him the day he did yeah i can imagine um well you know i, I have this this sort of concept or this idea i think that everyone's capable of far more than they think and um you know whether you know that i guess that does come down to self-belief but i think that um you know very few people realize their their capabilities and their potential and i think that's one of the the greatest sadnesses of of a human being um unfortunately but i think that you know most people encounter that and 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 without someone like a mentor or, or someone that can sort of you know encourage you through that you know like whether it's a you know whether it's a a, a, a pull-up or it's a you know a career or a education or um you know a, a relationship or a you know whatever it might be i think that um you know, you can you can break through a barrier in, in one part of your life, and I think it trans transcends you know you know transcends sorry all of those other barriers, and you start to realise that you do you are capable of other things. You know, the a great example is when you know people complete an event like a marathon, you know, for example, and they and they they, they never thought they'd do it, and for some something's inspired them to do it, and you know they've gone out and after a year's training they've gone and finished you know a marathon, and they they sit back and they had that introspective moment. And you go, well, you know, 12 months ago, I 
certainly didn't think I could run a marathon and, and now I've done that and you know what other areas of my life are there things that I don't think I'm capable of that if I actually concentrated a, a bit of effort in and a bit of time and a bit of a bit of grafting and, and hustle could I actually um, you know have another significant sort of breakthrough through and I, I you know I'm, I'm always you know a huge advocate of, of people you know having a swing at some of these these events you know particularly you know like endurance events because I think that again it just like you've said it just can change the self-belief that someone has in themselves and, and have a, an effect on their entire life. I couldn't agree more, man. I could not agree more. Yes, we do hold ourselves back for reasons of lack of self-belief and also for reasons of being cognitively exited, playing that emotionally yes, safe yeah, game, yeah, did right. not being prepared to fail or be seen to fail. Yeah, yeah for now, sure. I'm sure my wife would wish that I did have some sense of, failure at times because I don't I, I just totally don't and I will give anything a go and I don't particularly care what people think I mean that's evident in the way I dress and all sorts <laughs> <laughs> I'm not driven by what people around me think about me it, that doesn't bother me I don't need to be I don't feel great sense I don't feel an urge to have a flash car or be seen to be successful in that regard mm. at all it's a lovely way to um, to be, you know. It's um, again, I think we talked about this off here. It's a, it's easy in concept, but hard in practice, you know. For for for, for me anyway, what I've come to, I, I was, you know, growing up was very much not growing up, but probably isn't, you know, a young man was certainly very conscious of what other people thought of me. And I guess as I've got older, I've 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 worked on that, and I guess it's not. I haven't. I don't care what most people think of me I, I think I have a, a smaller group and I think as I'm getting older and working on it I think that's getting smaller and smaller and as long as I, I care what they think and as long as that's I'm doing the right thing you know in their eyes then I feel good you know I don't care about what the Joneses think but um, you know that that circle of 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 um, close family and friends I certainly still do have a you know some sort of feelings towards how they perceive me yeah, and I, I get that yeah. Well, look, I went through that phase too. There was no doubt that, you know, when I, I went through as a young man, you know, I was, I felt like a real failure. I'd bombed out relatively at school and, you know, taken me, I was a real late starter. I'd had radiography before I went to university and, you know, was I smart or dumb, which was true, you know, the, <laughs> I had, yeah, so I, I had a lot to prove. But once I felt I proved it to myself, it just all fell apart. I just didn't need that anymore. I didn't. So I did definitely went through that phase of seeking external, you know, validation, and others. No doubt about it. But I soon got over it. And there it is. Thank you so much for listening to part one of my conversation with Sean Thomas. He is an amazing man, of which you will be well aware now. Um, look, I split these my conversation with Sean into two parts because the second part is um, you know, is quite different to the first. You know, obviously this has been about his professional career. He said, um, you know, we touched a little bit at the end there on some of the work he's done in his community with young people, um, the book he's written. But um, you know, you would have heard 
Sean talk a couple of times there about his illness, which he's um, which he's dealing with at the moment, and he has been for the last eighteen months or so. And so I've um, we've split this into two sections purely because the next podcast is all about that. Um, he's written a blog post called "On the Subject of Death." He is unfortunately terminally ill with cancer, and so the second conversation is all about that, and uh, a very interesting conversation as well. And I, I do recommend that you um, check that out. But um, obviously, huge amount of gratitude towards Sean for his time, for um, his wisdom. Um, as you would have heard, and he's, he's an amazing man, and um, I'm just thrilled I got to have a conversation that I that I have done today. Also, a huge thanks to you. You know, I love recording these podcasts. I love being able to talk to people like Sean and the fact that other people enjoy them and listen to them really does mean the world to me. And if you did take something out of today, if you could do, um, you know, one of a couple of things, one would be to um, like or subscribe to the podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just hit subscribe or like and you'll get all the new podcasts as they come out. And secondly, if you did take something out of today, um, if you could share the episode, you know, whichever platform, again, you listen to your podcast on, just hit the share button and send it to someone that's how the podcast grows or alternatively just get old school on it and tell someone to go and check out the road to success podcast on both spotify and apple podcasts as well stay tuned for the second episode with sean thomas but for now thank you so much for listening take care love you see you bye